This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The shooting in Orlando has once again turned people's attention to blood donation. Colorado Congressman Jared Polis thinks restrictions on gay donors ought to be lifted. We'll talk about that shortly. But first, let's understand how blood donations work after a mass shooting or disaster. Liz Lambert is spokeswoman for the Bonfice Blood Center, obviously a big player in blood on the Colorado scene. And Liz, welcome to the program. Thank you. So obviously there were people who gave blood um, immediately after the attack on the nightclub in Orlando. And I, I want to understand, if you do that in Colorado, is any of your blood literally going to Florida? Well, it depends on the situation. In the case of Florida, they did reach out to other blood centers for help to replenish what was used in that immediate need. And they were using blood. Yes. And so when there are traumas, including gunshot wounds, a lot of times they need O-negative blood because there's not time to test the patient, O-negative being the universal donor. And they'll use what's on the hospital shelf ready to go. That's what always helps in an emergency, which is why we need that constant need for blood donors all year round so that you always have it ready to go. A stable shelf. Right. Okay. And in the case of Florida, once they depleted that supply, they asked other blood centers for help. And then you've seen the lines out the door at the blood centers in Orlando, people wanting to give back and replenish that supply. But that takes about 48 hours from the time you donate to get it to a hospital shelf where a patient can use it. And so that's why that Steady supply is so crucial and critical. When you give blood here in Colorado, we have helped out in other situations. For example, Hurricane Katrina, it wasn't so much that patients uh, were in a trauma situation, but the blood center itself was underwater and couldn't help the patients for everyday needs, medical treatments, surgeries, that kind of thing. And so when Bonfies is able to meet Colorado's needs first and has any additional units of blood ready to go, then we can help other areas of the country and send it there. Okay. And were there any of those literal or direct transfers after Orlando? Not from Bonfies directly, but our affiliate blood centers did help out in that situation. Affiliate blood centers in Colorado or elsewhere around the country? Elsewhere in the state. Uh, Bonfies is Colorado's blood center, more or less, serving about 70% of the needs of patients around Colorado at about 100 hospitals. Okay. So when you give blood, there's a chance that it might directly uh, impact victims of a shooting, for instance, but it is more likely that it is feeding the the general system. Is that right? Correct. And Bonfies serves Colorado's needs first. There are 3,000 units of blood that we need to collect every week just to maintain that supply and ensure that everyday surgeries, medical treatments, kids undergoing cancer therapies, all kinds of uses that often don't uh, rise to the level of needing media attention, uh, all of those things require blood. And every two seconds, somewhere in the country needs blood every day of the year. Just to clarify something you said earlier, um, it's that blood that is going to Orlando did not come from Colorado. It was it was coming from other states, correct? In this situation, in this, yes. Okay, all right. I think you said elsewhere in the state, and you meant elsewhere oh, in the country. Correct. Okay. Um, and then you obviously see interest in giving blood after disasters and after high-profile events like this. And then I wonder if two, three weeks down the line, you see a lull. 
That will probably be the case, as we've seen with other situations. After the Aurora shooting, for example, we had our line out the door at our Bonfils Lowry Center of people wanting to give back. And in that case, the blood did, in fact, replenish the supply used in that shooting at the local hospitals. And what we do in those situations is we carefully monitor the supply. Every day of the year, we're carefully monitoring that supply to ensure that we don't get below a certain par level and ensure that there's enough to go around. We make pleas with the media when that supply does get very low. Which is often the case in the summer, by the way. That is. And 20 percent, there's a drop of about 20 percent sometimes in the summer when people are on vacation, the high schools that hold blood drives are out on break, and people just aren't thinking about how to help others. They've got a lot going on in their lives. All right. And so summer is a time to keep this in mind if you can. Um, but what would you what would you say to the person who doesn't normally give blood but does so in the wake of headlines? I would say that I hope it's a great experience for you because once you give blood, you realize it's an hour of your time from the time you walk in the door until you leave. It's 10 minutes actually in the chair physically donating, and you can save up to three lives with one donation. And you have indeed seen a lot of interest after the Orlando shooting. Can you put any numbers on that? In fact, yesterday alone, our appointment center that makes calls and sets appointments typically sets about 325 appointments on a Monday. Yesterday, that number was over 500. And that's just the phone appointments. We have our website where people make appointments, others walked in. And just those who have set, used the special group code 7300, those who come to our center and specify that group code. That's or a code for this event? It's in honor of the victims of Orlando. Okay. And so if they mention the Orlando Memorial Blood Drive or that number, we've counted close to 100 donors just since Sunday who have already made that designation. All right. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Liz Lambert, spokeswoman for Colorado's Bonfice Blood Center. And the center does ask that people make appointments before donating blood. So Congressman Jared Polis of Colorado has called for a relaxation of FDA rules on gay men donating blood. After the Orlando shooting, the Boulder Democrat called the restrictions morally bankrupt Men cannot donate if they've had sexual contact with another man in the past year. That is actually an easing of an earlier lifetime ban. Polis is with us by phone, and for added perspective, we're also joined by Dr. Lewis Katz. He's an infectious disease specialist and chief medical officer for America's Blood Centers. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. And Representative Polis, um, why do you call this morally bankrupt, these, these restrictions? Well, it really plays off uh, stigmas dating from the 1980s. Uh, a couple points that are, are relevant here. Um, obviously, you know, our, my blood as a gay person is the same as a straight person's blood. What puts uh, somebody at risk for an STD, and of course our, our blood supply is screened, but we still want to screen out people that are at high risk, is behavior, not sexual orientation. So, um, you know, it's certainly fair to ask if somebody's used IV drugs or if they've engaged in unprotected sex, but whether that is uh, whether they're gay or straight is entirely irrelevant to uh, whether they've led, led a high-risk lifestyle or whether they're in a monogamous married relationship and uh, have a very low degree of risk. And so many uh, gay people, because of the nature of this terrorist act, were obviously moved to help and wanted to help and uh, are unable to, to give blood, in some cases even to help their own spouse or, or friend who might have been a victim of, uh, of this uh, horrible act in Orlando. 
And so what you're saying is that you would like the determination not to be made on orientation, but on behavior? Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, that's what that's what puts somebody at risk is if they are an IV drug user, if they've engaged in unprotected sex. Obviously, if you're whether you're gay or straight, if you're in a monogamous and you know married relationship, you're certainly not in any higher risk category. Uh, whether you're you're gay or straight, in fact, the FDA's own study found that the prevalence of HIV in male blood donors uh, was actually lower in uh, in, in in gay men, 025 percent, than it was in the overall population, 0.38 percent. And again, it's perfectly fair to apply. Uh, standards for behavior uh, as questions, and those need to be applied to both gay people and straight people the same way, because whether you're gay or straight, you can either uh, be safe or engage in risky activity, and that's the kind of screening that we should have uh, for donors, rather than just as a blanket ruling, say, just because of who you happen to love, you're not able to help those in need. Let me put to you a statistic from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that men who have sex with men, and let's say that's a broader category, in other words, those may be people who don't identify as gay. So men who have sex with men account for 78% of new HIV infections among males, 63% of all new HIV infections. From a public health standpoint, why not place limits on that demographic um, g- given those statistics, well, it's not the it's not the demographic of of being gay that's a risk factor. It's having unprotected sex. So, uh, asking a, a question is perfectly fair. Have you, if somebody has had unprotected sex, if they've used IV drugs, uh, there's other risk categories um, that can appropriately be screened for. But they're the same uh, questions that should be asked to people who are, are gay or straight. Um, obviously. You look at uh, whether it's HIV or any other virus, it can be uh, communicated uh, through um, through sexual relations, straight or gay, that doesn't discriminate. And obviously one of the fastest uh, increasing groups are, in fact, uh, straight people with regard to HIV infection. So in addition to making sure our blood is screened, which we do, uh, we should have a behavioral-based screen for donors uh, rather than simply sexual orientation or, or race or any other characteristic that in and of itself is not a risk factor. Uh, It may correlate with a risk factor, but we have the ability to actually find out the risk factor itself. And uh, many uh, gay Americans, of course, are in married and and committed in monogamous relationships, and they're not in any higher risk category than a similarly situated uh, straight person who's married and monogamous. All right. Let's bring in Dr. Lewis Katz, again, infectious disease specialist and chief medical officer for America's Blood Centers. And Dr. Katz, um, from your perspective, uh, what do you make of of the idea of behavioral assessments as opposed to uh, a sort of blanket assessment of a demographic? Well, I, it's really the next logical consideration in what, for me, has been a process that started um, in 1982 or 83. That is the assurance of the safest possible blood supply, not just HIV, but hepatitis B, C, other organisms. I think um, at this point, the policy promulgated by FDA, most recently a one-year deferral that is being implemented around the country as we speak um, is in part based on the historical success of the MSM men who have sex with men approach to deferral, uh, but also on 
the lack of data regarding the kind of behavior-based deferrals that the congressman refers to and that we're all, I think, very interested in exploring. So that's uncharted territory to some extent, you're saying, but that... Yeah, it really is. In the United States, absolutely. Rest of the world, there are countries where this is being done. Italy, Spain, um, I believe Argentina. I, I Don't quote me on that. Several, four or five. But the, uh, the screening environments where this is being undertaken are completely different. The shape of the epidemics are different. The kind of personnel used to screen blood donors are different. And I, I can tell you from long experience with the Food and Drug Administration, um, that sort of change will not come without data that suggests strongly that we have no decrement in safety. Uh, and I will point out that the data that moved us from a permanent deferral to a one-year deferral was in large part gathered by the blood community. Um, my organization, America's Blood Centers, the American Red Cross and ADB, have advocated since I think 2002 for a relook at our approach to deferral of men who have sex with men. So um, I'd like to just—it's a little self-serving. I'll point out we're out in front of this. I want to—I want to ask you though about—I uh, want to ask you about the the more recent change. So there was the lifetime ban on men who have sex with men giving blood. And then the rule changed uh, late last year to say, okay, if you're a man who has sex with a man, you can give blood only if you haven't had sex with a man for a year. Pra- uh, practically, a hollow, isn't it? Well, practically speaking, it may strike some as nearly identical to an outright ban. Yeah, what, yeah, what, what do you make of it? I think I've made that point um, repeatedly in a number of forms, including speaking to my friends and colleagues at the FDA, to ask somebody to abstain for sex from a year is not that far from a permanent deferral. So I, we understand that. If they moved in the direction they moved based on data generated uh, in the U.S., data generated in other developed countries' blood systems, most particularly Australia and others, that demonstrated that moving from permanent to one year was not associated with an increased risk by the metrics that we use. So as, as many people have said, use the metaphor, it's a first step, and, and it is absolutely. The so, infrastructure that was used to generate the data, some of the data, a big piece of the data, that was used to move from permanent to a year, uh, has now been funded, I believe, through about five years. It's called the Transfusion Transmitted Infections Monitoring System. And data collected from that system and others will be used to inform the current policy and changes in policy going forward. Got it. So it will be monitored, and then more steps may be taken. And so, Congressman Polis... And if, um, if, yeah, if I can get in here, I think what's so frustrating to so many of us is, you know, clearly, uh, common sense, science, it's conduct, not orientation, that is a risk factor. Um, there is nothing innate to one's sexual orientation uh, that places one at higher risk. It is behavior, it is conduct, and it's conduct and behavior regardless of whether you're straight or gay or bisexual. Uh, If somebody is having unprotected sex with multiple partners, they are at risk 
They're at risk if they're straight. They're at risk if they're gay. And so, uh, Representative, do you think that in this regard, um, things are moving too slowly? Because what, what we're hearing from Dr. Lewis Katz is that these decisions are made uh, very gradually over time with lots of data and that it that in his mind it needs to unfold um, thoughtfully. Uh, do you think it's moving too slowly? Well, I, I, the, the, the initial decision, you know, this sort of, I'm sorry, this change from a year ago, uh, as you indicated, was really not much of a change. I mean, gay people are still <clears throat> not allowed to donate blood. Uh, I mean, who would have had the foresight to say, we think there's going to be a crisis in Orlando, I'm going to abstain for a year just so I can give blood? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. There's, there's nobody who thought that way. There's basically still uh, a ban. Um, I think, uh, you know, society understands, certainly science understands that uh, there are risk factors uh, in one's exposure to STDs. Uh, One's orientation and who they're attracted to is not a risk factor. If one is in a married relationship, a monogamous relationship, uh, they are at no greater risk uh, if they are gay or straight. Uh, And likewise, if there are straight people who are multiple partners or gay people, it's completely appropriate to screen them out. But there is nothing innate with who one is attracted to that in and of itself is a risk factor. It's entirely based on conduct, uh, IV drug use, uh, unprotected sex, and very appropriately to secure a national blood supply, those should be the items that we screen for. So the FDA did entertain the idea of lifting the restrictions entirely, but according to the AP, the agency said doing so could quadruple the number of HIV transmissions through blood transfusions. The current rate is one in two million blood units. So, Representative Polis, I know that you keep pointing to to behavior as the determinant here, but what do you make of those FDA numbers, which is that if the policy changes, there might be... um, uh, a, a quadrupling of HIV transmissions. Well, you know, again, they were obviously cooked up to defend the current policy. Um, if the FDA instituted better screening to help weed out, for instance, a promiscuous straight person who would have a higher risk than a married gay man, uh, of, for instance, HIV transmission, the risk would actually go down of HIV transmission. So uh, I don't think anybody uh, in the LGBT community who wants to help is saying, lower the standards uh, and put people at risk of contracting HIV. If anything, we're saying increase the standards. Make sure we have a better way of screening gay and straight people, as long as it's the same way of screening them both, to weed out uh, those who engage in in high-risk behavior uh, and simply say that they they can donate. Um, This should absolutely be done in a way which further decreases the risk of HIV transmission in blood by having a more meaningful uh, form of screening, rather than an arbitrary one, where, again, somebody who's married and uh, in a same-sex relationship and monogamous for decades uh, somehow can't donate blood, even though they're in the lowest possible risk group, allowing them to donate blood will bring down the overall pre- pre- prevalence of uh, any type of uh, contamination of the blood supply. We want more people from the lowest risk groups, and we're excluding those under the current policy. Dr. Katz, what is the the strength of screening for HIV and and other STIs in the blood supply? Is it is it very good? Is it a well? The the tests that we use are among the most sensitive laboratory assays ever developed for any indication anywhere in medicine. They are superb. 
And we've gone from when I started on this journey um, in the very early 80s, uh, no test, to 85, uh, we had a window that is an interval before testing could detect an infection of two months. And we're down now to nine, 10 days with nucleic acid testing. I think the inescapable logic that the FDA uses in support of their historic and current approach are the numbers that you quoted earlier, that uh, 4% of the population um, is victim of, of almost three-quarters of the new infections. Uh, so their argument is that the sexual orientation that they require us to elicit is in fact strongly associated with whatever behavior resulted in transmission. And that's really the core of their argument. And I think on an intellectual basis, I absolutely agree with the congressman. If we are able to elicit behaviors effectively from a broad spectrum of donors, we can move in the way that he'd like to move. The problem is demonstrating that that does not produce a decrease in safety, and that's what FDA is and will demand. I understand where they're coming from, absolutely. So very briefly, um, we, we've got to wrap up. Uh, Representative, I'm so sorry. Representative Polis, can I ask you just before we go, uh, w- will you move in any concrete way to make this happen? Is that legislation or just very, uh, very we, briefly? Uh, I mean, obviously, given this tragedy in Orlando and obviously the outpouring of support and the ridiculous situation where even the spouses of those in need of blood uh, aren't able to, to contribute blood along with many of their friends, uh, I think it's really, you know, pulled... Uh, uh, you know, it's really showed the American people kind of the the counter productivity of this. Uh, there's so, so much will, will you take a concrete step? People want to help. Is there a concrete we're, step? Yeah, of course. We're renewing us. Uh, we've been working on this for five years, and we're renewing our efforts in a bicameral letter uh, with a number of my colleagues to uh, tell the FDA to address this urgently in the interest of securing our national blood supply, making it safer, allow uh, those who just happen to be gay and are low risk to be able to help out and contribute blood, uh, just as others are. Uh, Really, the blood of gay people is the same as the blood of straight people, as we saw with those whose blood was spilled in Orlando this last weekend. Representative Jared Polis, a Boulder Democrat, and Dr. Lewis Katz, infectious disease specialist with America's Blood Centers. They joined us by phone, and we'll continue after a break. On Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A huge collection of dead animals has a new home. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science has moved about a million specimens into a new facility. CPR's Sam Brash explains why the future of that collection will include lots of roadkill squirrels. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science has no shortage of animals on display. More than 100 dioramas line the hallways. But you have to descend to see the bulk of the museum's critter collection. So now we're going down to the bottom level of this uh, new part of the museum here. That's John Domboski, the museum's zoology curator. He's a bearded biologist who started collecting lizards and frogs as a kid in Louisiana. He leads me into a huge white room. Jaguars and cranes peer down from shelves. It's like if the Apple store had a taxidermy section. Denver voters passed a bond in 2007 to help pay for a $70 million expansion that included the new facility. Construction finished three years ago. 
Then the museum started to pull its 1.5 million objects into the new space. It's a big deal. It's taken years to move. Now, Domboski is just about done. The standout animals, they already have permanent homes. This is uh, Colorado's last known grizzly bear. We had them, it was thought, till the 1950s. That was the last good records. And then this bear right here uh, popped up in 1979. There's more evidence of Colorado's ecological past. Most of it, like the bear, has been dried and laid flat in drawers. But some has been stuffed. There's bison from the 1870s. There are passenger pigeons, a bird once so common that flocks blacked out the sun. Now, they're extinct. So do you ever worry about this part of the collection growing? I mean, as a biologist, you see a lot of what's going on. So... On one hand, part of my job here as curator is to document some of this biodiversity, and some of it might be actually showing biodiversity declining. To do that, Domboski has shifted the way the museum collects animals. Decades ago, it would commission hunters to bring the wilds of Brazil or Africa to Colorado for display. That's why there are all the dioramas. Now, the focus is on research about the local environment. People like Leah Pishak drive acquisitions. She's with the Greenwood Wildlife Rehabilitation Center in Longmont. Any animal that is found not rehabable and has to be euthanized, we go ahead and do a collection for the Denver Museum. That means squirrels, coyotes, birds that hit windows, almost all that dies goes to the museum. Domboski calls these specimens salvage. He took in around 4,000 last year. He says that with the move, his department hasn't been able to keep up, and that's why thousands of animals wait their turn in a walk-in freezer. This is, you know, one or two years of what we call backlog. The freezer is so daunting that he let one squirrel skip the line and go straight to the museum's prep lab. According to the record, it was uh, this squirrel was found not moving in the street and then maybe it either died or they had to euthanize it. He turns the squirrel over to James Gilman, one of the museum's 150 zoology volunteers. We'll save the skeleton, and then we save internal organs for DNA, and we run the bowel for any parasites. Dimbosky shows me the next step as Gilman removes the squirrel's skin. We need to clean the skeleton, and the way we do it, and a lot of museums do it, is use flesh-eating beetles, some over here. Yep, flesh-eating beetles. He lifts the lid on a plastic tank full of camel bones. The smell of rot rushes through the room. Oh, my God. And these beetles love to eat the meat off these bones. And once they're finished, the bones will be labeled, boxed, and linked to online databases that Domboski is giddy to show off. In his office, he pulls the record for another squirrel. And I can click it. And there it is, Overland Pond Park between South Platte River and Overland Pond. So a lot of these go right down to, you know, somebody's backyard. That's why data is so important for Domboski. He'll take almost any animal so long as he knows when and where it died. That way, researchers can find patterns. So you can start seeing how things are changing and moving around. Are species expanding? Are they contracting? And then the question is why? You know, is it climate change issues? Is it an invasive species? Those questions are what drive him, and why he says the new facility matters. He'll keep taking in dead critters so that in the future, researchers understand the changes that are on their way to Rocky Mountain ecosystems. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News.
Okay, let's zoom in on one specimen stored beneath the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Blood-red cave worms were first added to the collection in 2007, and this year they became a newly recognized species. That is thanks to David Steinman. He's a cave biologist with the museum. He found these worms living off of toxic gases in a cave in Steamboat Springs. And David joins us by phone. Welcome to the program. Good morning. How are you? I'm okay. Thanks for being with us. You would not expect an almost alien ecosystem in a resort town like Steamboat Springs. Where Where is this cave? Sulphur Cave is located right near the um, Olympic practice ski jumps on Hallison Hill in Steamboat Springs. So if you're familiar with the town of Steamboat and you've seen the big ski jumps, the cave is really ne- just right near by the ski jumps, right in the middle of the town of Steamboat Oh, fascinating. Yeah, Howelson Hill occupies a big place in ski history. Who knew about this cave? You've been inside it for, I guess, almost a decade every year going there. What's it like inside? Oh, it's an extremely unusual cave. Within the whole world, there are not very many sulfur caves like this in existence. And going into Sulfur Cave, it's actually a deadly, toxic cave, full belching, you know, stinky, poisonous gases and toxic gases, so there's hydrogen sulfide, and there are also um, lethal levels of carbon dioxide. And so going inside is like really a, an experience. It takes putting on self-contained breathing apparatus, sort of like firefighters wear, so one doesn't breathe the toxic air, and then you have to climb down a really muddy, goopy slope that's stinky and slimy. But once inside, it's actually a beautiful place with crystals and little formations and um, really interesting cave, and a stream flows through the cave as well. Hmm. And these blood-red worms, are they all over the cave, or do you have to seek them out in pockets of it? Oh, they're really all over the cave, surprisingly. That's one of the more unusual things about this new species. Mostly worms like this live more individually and not in like big clumps or congregations. And there must be tens of thousands of worms in Sulphur Cave, hmm. and they're really not very hard to see. One has to look, just pay attention, but they're in little clumps on the ground. They're wiggling and red and moving and really, again, sort of slimy, but they're pretty in their own unusual way. So it's not very hard to see them once one starts looking around. Are they very long? Oh, they're probably about an inch long or so, and about as thin as a pencil lead. And they really move, and they're, they're little segments inside. They're basically transparent, so one can see their inter- internal organs, and they look quite nice under a microscope. I see. Is that why they're blood red, because their internal organs are blood red and you can see them? Yes, exactly. And the, mainly the internal organs are, are full of their blood, which is um, very high in hemoglobin, and they have blood that binds oxygen amazingly well, which is one of the neat things about these worms. They can transport oxygen um, in conditions that allows them to breathe, essentially, where it's very low levels of oxygen. And that's one of the things we're researching, is how their blood um, basically carries oxygen and binds oxygen so well to hemoglobin. And there could, in the long term, be some potential medical benefits to that aspect in terms of improving blood oxygenation and oxygen transport for people who have poor circulation or other problems. Hmm. Do they live elsewhere in the world, or do you think that they are unique to Steamboat? I believe they're unique to the Steamboat 
Springs area because of the geology there and all the hot springs allow these worms to live in a very sulfitic environment with you know when you go into the city of steamboat you can often smell that rotten egg smell yeah. and that's how sulfur cave smells so we haven't really i've explored glenwood springs a little bit and some of the sulfur caves there and haven't seen them these worms so right now we're thinking they're just in the steamboat area but they could be found to be out more in more places and actually there's a, a cave in italy which is a sulfur cave and i've been told by researchers that they've seen some blood red worms in that cave as well but they just still need to be studied and collected hmm. i wonder if their ability to survive in these low oxygen environments I don't know, might hold some promise for the athletes that are just outside the cave at altitude and who, you know, need oxygen. Yes. I actually joked to some of my friends over the years that if, like, people, athletes could eat worms or have worm blood, yeah, their performance (laughs) would be significantly improved. That's for certain. So, and they're also, also, we're working with a group in France we've just started collaborating with, and they're researching extremophile worms, and the sulfur cave worms are considered extremophiles because they live in an extreme environment, which would be deadly to most creatures. And so this group in France is actually studying extremophile worms for new antibiotics because the worms live in an environment with, surrounded by bacteria, and yet they don't seem to be diseased or have any ill effects from their environment. So there could be new and interesting antibiotics, actually, in these worms potentially as well. Fascinating. In just the last few seconds we have, David, um, this leads to the question of extraterrestrial life and whether if worms can survive in this environment, there might be something like this on another planet. Um, I suppose that's one of the interesting questions you're looking at. Yes yes or no? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, And I've been working with Dr. Norm Pace and Dr. Hazel Barton, who are both microbiologists, and the the worms in Sulphur Cave actually eat bacteria, and the bacteria are metabolizing hydrogen sulfide and chemicals to get their um, energy. So this ecosystem in Sulphur Cave could be similar to something on another planet or maybe the moon Io of Jupiter because the ecosystem is not dependent at all upon sunlight, and it gains its base energy from... um, the chemicals in the ground and in the water. So I could easily see bacteria similar to the sulfur cave bacteria being in existence on other planets and maybe potentially higher level organisms like the worms as well. Fascinating. David Steinman, cave biologist with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Coming up, why good teachers who love to teach leave teaching. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. School's out for the summer, but come fall, a fair number of teachers won't return to the classroom. Half of teachers leave in their first five years on the job. We caught up with one veteran teacher to learn why he's decided to leave a profession he adores. Here's CPR's education reporter, Jenny Brundine. Rick Young has always been fiercely devoted to teaching. I have been in tears quite a bit this last week. And to the school where he spent all of his professional life. This became my home. That home is Daniel C. Oaks. It's a small alternative high school in Douglas County for students who've been failing in a traditional school. For many, this is their last chance. And for some, it will become their first success. 
Each year, the graduating seniors get the chance to thank the teachers who made the difference this time. This is such a special place. I have baggage just like everyone else here, and this is the place, and these are the people who love you for all of it. Mr. Young, quit hating on my selfies (laughs) because they're great and I'm going to miss you. Richard Young for challenging me and giving me the confidence to study art. It is just so gratifying when you do hear some of these comments about how you change the way a student looks at the world or you open their minds to such and such possibility that before they hadn't considered. It's very humbling. Young relished working his students hard. He worked into the night, giving them detailed feedback on their research papers. He constantly searched for new materials, customizing each lesson to his students, finding new ways to connect with them. So why would a 58-year-old teacher leave something he's obviously so passionate about? It's become a lot harder to teach, and especially to teach in a way that, that I personally think is meaningful for my students. Young is talking about a national trend in teaching to more clearly document and measure what's taught. He says this means filling out endless paperwork as he now must plan his lessons in a more systematic and precise way. I've got to make sure my lesson is, you know, written in the form of a backward design. That's a three-stage process. First, he documents what are his desired results. Then, How will he assess his students? Finally, he must explain how he will provide learning experiences and opportunities for practice and application. Then he must show that I'm aiming to hit a world-class outcome. Those are defined. Then I've got to make sure that the lesson or unit touches on a 21st century skill. That could be civic responsibility, financial literacy, and systems thinking. There are 13 skills in all. Then he must make sure the lesson hits. The four C's communication, creativity, collaboration, and what am I missing here? Critical thinking. There's more. There's a rubric for each of the four C's. I mean, you might think, okay, I'm going to have these kids work on critical thinking. That's defined in a particular way. And there's an incredibly detailed rubric of what you're supposed to be looking for to really teach critical thinking. And that just gets very cumbersome. Young says sometimes he'd have to squeeze and stretch as he fills out these boxes just to make sure he's still actually teaching history. The district says such methodical planning means the highest quality classrooms. It helps teachers better structure lessons and choose activities that push kids to think at a higher level and lead their own learning. But for a longtime teacher used to the freedom of just teaching in a way he believed was engaging to his students, the new way of planning, packaging, and documenting a lesson plan into a complex rubric for him was soul-sucking. So that's basically one course. That's my world. As the lone teacher cleans out his room for the last time, he takes a moment to flip through a book of memories teachers and students gave him. Kids wrote messages. Thank you, Mr. Young. I'm grateful for all the eggs of knowledge you cracked over my head. One former student writes, what he's most grateful for is Young's unsurpassed ability to create a safe space that allowed students to learn and dialogue with grace and respect. I'm tearing up now. (laughs) Another writes, we students from Oaks didn't quite fit the mold. But you, as well as all the other teachers at Oaks, you took us in and treated us as if we were your most prized possessions. It helped us want to become more. All right, one more load in the bin. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. Graduates, please rise.
and you're listening to Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today is the last 2016 primary election. It's in Washington, D.C., and it's a Democratic contest. Hillary Clinton is already the presumptive nominee, but this marks a transition in the lengthy fight between Clinton and Bernie Sanders. The two are expected to meet tonight. CPR's Megan Verlee has the story of one of Sanders' most fervent Colorado supporters, This is part of an occasional series, Profiling Grassroots Campaign Volunteers. I first heard about T.C. Bell months before I actually met him. I was covering a caucus training put on by Sanders volunteers. They were all bummed I'd come on a night when their lead organizer wasn't there. And one of them said something that surprised me. T.C. Bell, the main activist working with us here, was a lifelong Republican. A lifelong Republican trying to win the state for a Democratic Socialist? Who makes that kind of switch and why? My name is T.C. Bell, and I'm a Denver native. I work as a cashier. I'm also a father of two wonderful little girls. Bell's daughters are three and six years old, and he told me a little detail that sort of perfectly illustrates how crazy he is about politics. His oldest daughter is named Dagny, after the main character in that iconic conservative novel, Atlas Shrugged. Because at the time, we were like these libertarian anarchists. And so I was like, what's like the most libertarian name that I can come up with? But by the time my second daughter was born, she's actually named after Emma Goldman, who was a communist organizer. Bill describes himself as a contrarian by nature. In high school, he was a self-described, long-haired, pot-smoking, semi-hippie kid who also founded the Young Republicans Club and liked to read the National Review. Bell talks about his conservative past as a period of intellectual idealism. By 21, he was a foot soldier in the Ron Paul Revolution. My girlfriend had Google Ron Paul painted on her windshield for literally 12 months. Google Ron Paul was just on her windshield everywhere we went. But the 2008 election shattered Bell's political idealism. He was disgusted with the Republican establishment and its treatment of young activists like himself. At the same time, things were happening in his life that challenged his conservative beliefs. After their daughter was born, he and his girlfriend split up, and she applied for food stamps. And I could see just like the instant benefit, just the shift of not having to stress of where food is going to come from. It was in that moment when I kind of was like, oh, wait a minute. Not all of these big government programs are equivalent. At the same time, Bell's own economic situation was tough. He couldn't afford college and has been stuck in low-paying retail jobs. It's no wonder Bell was drawn to Sanders. He's living a lot of the campaign's talking points. Bell likes Sanders' concrete recommendations for free tuition and universal health care. But he says what resonates the most is Sanders' diagnosis of the problem. It was really the idea of the class issue. How are we going to live amongst ourselves, the rich and the multitudes of the poor? Because we're not doing a very good job right now. Bell's pivot from Ron Paul libertarian to Bernie Sanders socialist was complete. And maybe not such a surprise. Their ideas actually appeal to the same demographic groups— Both found their base with young, white, more socially liberal, lower-income men, the T.C. Bells of the world. Bell is also drawn to the fact that both candidates had potential to blow up a major political party from the inside. 
In Bell's mind, the parties are a big part of the problem. There are two zombies that are feeding off of each other and feeding off the fear of the American electorate that if we dare step outside the bounds of what these two obsolete parties are telling us to abide by, then everything will come crashing down around us. Bell used his organizing skills to train hundreds of other Sanders supporters how to navigate the March caucus. And it paid off. Colorado went for Sanders by almost 20 points. But as Sanders winds down his campaign, Bell is coming to accept the inevitable. And I know the writing's on the wall. Like, we're, Bernie's not going to win the nomination. Bell says he has no plans to check out on politics again, like he did after Ron Paul's defeat. But he can't say the same for younger Sanders supporters. What I fear is millions of people who haven't had the same experiences as me dropping out. And it's at that point that we really do lose. Bell hopes to rally those troops. If they can't have Sanders as their president, Bell says he'll commit to electing more Sanders-like politicians for local office. I'm Megan Verlee, CPR News. You have probably heard of a pub crawl, sampling drinks in different watering holes, but a play crawl? Just swap the booze for theater. On Wednesday, the Antoto 2 Theater Company will offer a sampling of two- to three-minute plays in shops and galleries along Denver's Tennyson Street. Here is the troupe's founder, Susan Lyles. There's generally not seats. Everybody kind of stands, so you're kind of stepping into the world. And then the businesses are also open for business. So you get people coming into the store, and suddenly they're in the middle of a play. There will be dramas and comedies like The Wine Snob, staged at a liquor store. It's by Denver playwright Catherine Wiley and features actors Mark Collins and Maggie Stacy. Here is a taste. This is the most exclusive wine tasting in the region. Oh. Invitation only. <laughs> Goody. <laughs> Do you know anything about wine? I know. I like red better than white. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, nothing. A wine virgin. Aren't you lucky to have me to initiate you into the intricacies of wine appreciation? I am a true inophile. Enophilist. Pardon? The Greek word for wine lover. Enophilist, not an enophile. <laughs> Whatever. Here, try this one. Only a single vintage available. It's cultivation story is exquisite. The grapes are dried in a cave on Mars for 10 years before being gently pressed in organic cheesecloth by purebred chinchillas and aged in antique casks for two generations. At that point, they are siphoned into barrels made of endangered old-growth oak. Ah, I'm tasting sour grapes, inflated ego, and earthworm casings in a well-integrated structure which is muscular and arthritic. An epic finish, don't you agree? Very nice. Very Uh nice? How about this one? Once the grapes are harvested, they are driven in 19th century horse-drawn carriages to a private spa where they receive hot stone massage and practice Tibetan meditation. Only after reaching Nirvana are they allowed back into the vineyard, where they are stomped in marble bathtubs by toddlers from a village in Tuscany so remote that no one knows where it is. 
Actually, I know where it is, but if I told you, I'd have to kill you. Hmm, <laughs> I'd call this wine plush and generous without excess weight and not shy on depth or width or height or lifespan. The very healthy 401k. Delicious. I knew it! Three buck chuck! An excerpt of The Wine Snob by Catherine Wiley, part of this year's Play Crawl in Denver. All the short plays are by female playwrights. That's intentional. A 2015 study found that of the plays professionally produced in the U.S., just 22% were by women. Susan Lyles says that's a problem and is committed to producing work by women. As a woman, I want to hear my stories on stage written in a woman's voice. The sixth annual play crawl is Wednesday along Tennyson Street in Denver. Thanks so much for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters.